Buonasera! My name is Marcello. I am a tour leader with Explore. Ciao! Come, follow me. Behind this 200-year-old gate is the best view of one of Rome's finest fountains. Ah, oh, bellissima! Look at the Renaissance detail, the sunlight in the bronze! Not everyone knows about Turtle Fountain, but you will if you explore. Search exploreworldwide.co.uk and don't just travel, explore. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Andrew Harrison. If you read certain newspapers, you'd think that only one story preoccupies the British public. Never mind Brexit, never mind Covid or the economy. It's when will the BBC lose its licence fee? A constant target of the Mail and the Murdoch press, a hate figure for free marketers and culture warriors, the corporation has become an all-purpose punch bag. The left thinks it's biased against them. The right think it's full of lefties. Scottish nationalists think it's Westminster propaganda. And columnists stuck for a topic think it's a bastion of woke. Yet the BBC retains huge audiences and centrality to British culture and soft power as well. As of 2020, 32% of all TV watched in the UK came from a BBC channel. Its global audience across TV, radio and internet is now half a billion people a week. The BBC is 100 years old this year and its arch enemy, Culture Secretary Nadine Dorries, has just announced unilaterally without consultation that the latest licence fee announcement will be the last. How did an organisation that's arguably done more for the English language and English culture than anyone since Shakespeare become so threatened and what is its future? Simon Potter is the author of This is the BBC, Entertaining the Nation, Speaking for Britain, with a question mark at the end, and a professor of modern history at the University of Bristol. Hello Simon, how are you? Good, thanks, Andrew. Thanks for inviting me on your show. Welcome to the show. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. <laughs> the cover of your book is hugely redolent of the 1940s. It's a woodcut-style illustration. There's broadcasting house, lightning bolts of radio coming out from the top, a Mr Chumley Warner type reading the news into a giant microphone. Is this the BBC, crystallised, essentially still a creature of the patrician 1940s, do you think? It's an interesting image, isn't it? Because it's taken from a publicity brochure that the BBC put out to publicise its Arabic service. And the designer has manipulated the image and cut away lots of the surrounding bits and pieces, which show cities across the Middle East and listeners across the Middle East tuning into the BBC. So it's the image of itself that the BBC, I think, wanted to promote at the end of the 1930s. And it's probably an image that still lingers with us today in some ways when we think about about where the BBC's come from and and what it has represented in the past, if if not today. Yeah, I mean one thing you make clear in the book is that we tend to assume the BBC is a fact of life. You know, it's always been there. It's like Stonehenge. But it is in fact an exceedingly strange and unusual thing. And in fact the product of haphazard decision making. Tell me a bit about those haphazard decisions. Yeah. So I think when radio broadcasting starts up in Britain, nobody quite knows what it's for or what it's going to be. It's very hard to predict the future of radio. So contemporaries struggle to see what radio should be, how it should be organised in Britain. They look to America and they see lots of American amateurs and also American entrepreneurs 
setting up their own little radio stations, broadcasting whatever takes their fancy, and they see chaos. What British civil servants do is they really push for a much more ordered, structured approach to broadcasting in Britain. And they get into talks with the big companies like Marconi, who produce radio equipment, and they ask them, well, will you run radio for us? And those companies get their heads together and they say, well, we will, but it has to be one company that we can all collaborate in running. It has to have a monopoly and it has to be granted. We have to be granted uh, protectionist measures to prevent foreign radio equipment being brought into Britain. So right from the (laughs) beginning, yeah, I mean, it's a very restrictive, a very monopolistic approach to what becomes, you know, by the by the 1950s, 1960s, a really vibrant industry. But at the time, nobody quite knows what it's going to be. And some people think you can uh, mainly broadcast classical music. Others think it's going to be a medium for experts to talk to people. But but the idea that it would become the crucial news medium for, for Britain and for Britain to speak to the rest of the world, the idea that you'd listen to comedy programs and variety programs and drama – that's all very much in the future. And it's not necessarily what people are thinking about when the BBC is first established. And is it the Second World War that, that kind of changes that mission, that changes it from effectively software to run through these new devices that are available and, and almost a marketing platform into voice of Britain, voice of the free world, etc.? Mm. I think the Second World War does play a big role in that, but the the changes are there earlier on. And the twin drivers of, of change. It's first of all, competition. And I think this is probably what official histories of the BBC perhaps are less good at bringing out, that actually when the BBC does its most interesting stuff, it's when it feels the force of competition. And in the case of the 1930s, mm. that's coming from effectively pirate radio stations broadcasting from continental Europe, radio stations like Radio Luxembourg, which see there's a huge gap in the market. You can't have advertising in British radio. You can't um, broadcast lots of popular culture entertainment. So what Radio Luxembourg does is it gets into commercial arrangements with British entrepreneurs who go out and court British companies, get advertising contracts from them. Then they make programs themselves in London, fly them over to Luxembourg and broadcast them back at Britain in English. (laughs) So the BBC all of a sudden faces this competition from a completely unexpected quarter and very rapidly has to change what it does in in the wake of that. And probably the most famous example is Sunday broadcasting. So on Sundays in the late 20s, early 30s, the BBC doesn't start broadcasting till the afternoon. You might get some sombre religious music, a religious festival. You're not going to get any comedy or, or dance music. That's what Luxembourg provides. And, and very quickly, the BBC has to abandon this sombre funereal Sabbath and, and start broadcasting more popular programmes. The other, the other big driver of change in the late 1930s is what uh, fascist Italy and Nazi Germany are doing internationally. So they are broadcasting really well-produced, well-thought-out, very resource-intensive international broadcasting services aimed at places like the Middle East, but also crucially aimed at the United States. And the British Mm. government starts to put pressure on the BBC to compete, and the BBC 
from 1938 onwards works in a really close relationship. There's, a, there's an unwritten gentleman's agreement is quite, quite characteristic of the 1930s between the BBC and the British government that the BBC will start to provide a much more soft power slash propagandistic service for listeners, crucially in places like the Middle East, but also in America. So I was trying to locate in the book, where is the genesis moment where the government and the BBC start fighting? I don't know whether you'd agree, but the idea that it's in, actually in the 1950s when independent broadcasting is allowed for the very first time. There's a great bit where you write uh, to its critics, the post-war BBC seemed to reflect all that was bad and obsolete about middle-class home counties, monarchist imperial Britain. J.B. Priestley said that he always thought the Archbishop of Canterbury would be next door being interviewed. And I sort of feel like the BBC has had to carry this all, you know, all my life, reflecting Britain without being stuffy. Is that moment when independent broadcasting comes in is that a major kind of change of direction for the BBC? I think it is, yeah. I mean, it, it is crucial. You get a attempt, an attempt at the BBC. So basically the BBC has got a monopoly of all broadcasting in Britain until till 1954. And it's probably worth just pausing and, and almost repeating that because it seems almost amazing to us that one company has a monopoly of all radio and television in Britain up until 1954. Um, it's astounding. It's a, di- it's a different world. Churchill's government is, you know, Churchill is no fan of the BBC. He bears grudges against it from the way he'd been treated before the war. And also, you know, by the early 50s, the government wants to get rid of austerity Britain. It wants a more consumerist, vibrant economy. So you now this, this BBC monopoly with, with a complete ban on commercial advertising, it's not going to last. So ITV effectively is is authorised and starts broadcasting in London in 54. And the BBC really struggles to compete. You know, it starts to hemorrhage listeners and viewers to, to commercial television, which is just much more bright and attractive and, and interesting for most people. Under that force of competition, the BBC loses a lot of its audience. And it's really when a man called Hugh Carlton Green, who's the director general, and he's also the brother of Graham Green, the novelist. And also he's uh, one of the the family members of the the brewery company Green King uh, who make the make the beer and he's a big <laughs> he's a big beer fan as well so Carlton Green comes in and he's very intent on winning back the majority of the audience the BBC and that's when the BBC really starts to try and shrug off this stuffy establishment image i don't think it ever entirely gets rid of it and i think you can still see today at times when it's you know reporting on the royal family or certain events in in foreign affairs, the BBC goes into this strange official mode. I mean, I I lived in Ireland for a while, and when I came back, I was I was really struck by you know the BBC just suddenly almost throwing a switch and, and going back to that sort of Mister Chumley Warner uh, establishment voice. Yeah, it's like they mentally put on the dinner jacket while reading the news, don't they? It's like you can imagine suddenly it's gone into black and white, and the guy's got a bow tie on. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you do write that in the 1960s and 70s, the BBC does start to make you know lots of very popular and very provocative programmes. Much of this has been lost because they had this policy of wiping shows like My Beloved Doctor mm-hmm. Who uh, just to mm-hmm. reuse the tapes. And so a lot of this stuff is – this is like a huge chunk of popular history, which our parents and grandparents like lived through on a daily basis that we have no way of revisiting. What were these particular shows? How important were they? How kind of controversial were they? I mean, I'm thinking of things like Zed Cars and That Was The Week That Was and Up The Junction. Yeah, I mean, some of them some of them have survived. And I think the BBC has, has made an attempt to put some of them back 
into the public domain through through iPlayer and, and various other things, but but a huge amount has been lost. And even Dudley Moore and Peter Cook, their comedy programs, I think, are almost completely lost at the time. They were seen as being, you know, a really new, fresh style of comedy, and we just don't have them anymore. I think some of the hard-hitting investigative documentary that is made in programs like Special Inquiry, there's, there's bits and pieces of that left, but but it's hard to recapture a lot of the, the dynamism and the, the quite radical sometimes programming the BBC was making uh, at that time. The other problem is that probably programs for, for us that might seem quite quite staid and um, unremarkable, the impact that they had at the time is very, very hard to reconstruct. So I've, I noticed while I was writing this book that I, I was going back and trying to watch some old TV programs, listen to some old radio programs, and that the gap of time just really takes away a lot of the impact of them. And when I try to inflict them on my kids, just blank faces, and it's very, very hard to access these old programs. But as you say, dramas like Kathy Come Home, uh, looking at uh, homelessness, some of the programs may dealing with themes like teenage pregnancy and abortion. The BBC does really tread some quite dangerous ground in the 60s. And to some extent, it pays the price of that later on when it's the subject of moral crusades from people like Mary Whitehouse, who object to what it's doing to, she claims, to British culture and society. And also some of the political journalism, people like uh, Harold Wilson really feel that the um, BBC is out to get the Labour Party and to get him in particular. And he takes it out on them and installs Lord Hill as uh, the chairman of the BBC, who is the former head of the Independent Television Authority, so basically ITV's uh, statutory authority. And I think it's Attenborough. Maybe this is an urban myth, but David Attenborough is alleged to have said that it was like appointing Rommel to lead the Eighth Army. You know, how would you how would you give the BBC into the hands of somebody from the tawdry commercial world of ITV? I'll never forgive Barry Whitehouse for nobbling Doctor Who when it was at its best, when it was basically hammer horror for kids, incredibly exciting. And she leads this protest that it's too gory and too violent. And and, it, and the show was neutered. I mean, this has been a constant theme with the BBC, hasn't it? The idea that it is somehow corrupting the morals of the nation. Is there a, like an alpha scandal on that one? Is there a ground zero, a route for it when it first started happening? So I think the BBC is very aware right from the beginning that it is a potential focus for debates about taste and decency and moral standards. And I think people could pretend that things like print journalism or books, you could limit the spread of disruptive ideas through through censorship, but also because it's expensive to, to buy books. Radio is 10 shillings for a license in the in the 1920s and 30s everyone by 1939 who wants access to radio can have that so it's universal and that really makes it i think a lightning conductor for these debates about about taste and decency so the bbc imposes restrictions on what can be broadcast from a very early stage some of the more risque performers like ronald frankow and uh thinking about 
old programs. If you Google Ronald Franco and have a look at some of his routines, they're this bizarre mixture of the risque and uh, Mr. Chumley Warner style of 1920s performance in the top hat and tails. And people like Frank Howe, they can't do certain things on radio. I think there are then all sorts of debates in the 30s about politics. So once the BBC gets its Royal Charter in 1927, it's allowed to, to cover a wider range of controversial political issues. And there's a great quote from the Postmaster General before that happens. He's the sort of chief regulator for radio at the time. And he says, you know, once you let politics into broadcasting, you'll never get broadcasting out of politics. You know, you're always going to have controversies. That famously leads to the resignation of Hilda Matheson, who was a pioneering woman working at the BBC in the late 20s and the early 30s, who brought all sorts of intellectual figures from the world of Bloomsbury to the microphone. But she was accused in the right-wing press of left-wing bias and eventually is effectively forced out. This is all sounding very, very familiar. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, you can see a lot of that in what's been happening in, in British politics and the difficult place the BBC has tried to to occupy where effectively it pleases neither side. And whereas, whereas a newspaper on an issue like Brexit can pick a side and it knows that it will have an audience for the viewpoint that it presents, the BBC just can't do that. And the argument that actually you should you should judge the political balance of its outputs across the whole spectrum in the round. It's just not working today. How's it? My name is Lazeddy. I'm a toy leader with Explore. Come on, let me show you something. Oh, careful. Can you see it? Oh, trust me. It can see you. You get to see a rhino on a walk. I guess not everyone is taken to the right places, but you will be if you explore. For global adventures, search exploreworldwide.co.uk and don't just travel, explore. Namaskaram, my name is Nayad. I'm a tour leader with Explore. Come, follow me for a breakfast you will never forget. Namaste. <laughs> because you are going to make an incredible masala dosa under the watchful eye of my mom. Each home adds their special touches. Mm. But not everyone gets to join in a traditional family meal. You will if you explore. For global adventures, search exploreworldwide.co.uk and don't just travel, explore. Well, political satire is a constant theme of this podcast. We're always coming across it. And your book made me, it actually took my mind back to not the nine o'clock news which was incredibly brave at the time. The first series was supposed to go out in 1979 and they cancelled the whole series because of the 1979 election. The idea that one comedy programme could have such power. It was a brand new show. It didn't even have an audience yet. And you look at it now and a lot of the stuff has not dated particularly well, but in terms of its attitude, it's pretty incisive. Do you think the BBC is too timid to do something like that now? I think you can see that programmes have really pushed the limits when it comes to political satire like uh, that was the week that was. Although it's that, that programme is celebrated as this sort of great step towards uh, political satire in British broadcasting, it only lasted for about a year, um, and then it was pulled. And even Hugh Carlton Green, you know, this great liberal figure at the BBC in the 60s, 
he's basically obliged to pull the plug because it's just attracting too much controversy. I think you can contrast it to a program like Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister, which is satirizing the political system, satirizing the civil service, but very carefully doesn't satirize politicians or political parties. And is hugely successful because it's, it manages to do something witty and funny and, and interesting about politics without annoying politicians, um, which I wonder if that's more the sort of thing that the BBC should be aiming at. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to say what, what Yes Prime Minister might involve today. I think it might make the thick of it look pretty tame. We were just discussing before we started recording, you said that almost immediately as you were signing the book off, Nadine Dorries made her announcements about the licence fee, saying that it would be frozen and that this would be the last licence fee announcement and that in future there will be new ways of what she called funding great British content. You write in the book that you, you think the BBC is now under greater threat than at any time in its history. Do you think the government will succeed in ending the licence fee? I think if there's one thing I've learned over the last five years is not to try and predict anything about government policy or what its nature will be or what its successes or failures will be. But having said that, I think there is very clearly an identifiable drive at the moment, and there has been for some time, to once and for all reform the way public broadcasting is funded and operates in Britain. I think the BBC has already created a strategy to try and deal with that. And another thing I was really struck by when I was researching the book was the role of BBC Studios, which is a commercial subsidiary of the publicly owned corporation. And it's not something that you know, I think most people think about or know about or talk about, but I think it's more than an accountant's trick. So basically the BBC is hived off its production resources, its production operations out of the public corporation into this private subsidiary called BBC Studios. And when we're talking about what the BBC is, I think there's still in our mind this sort of broadcasting house, uh, public corporation, royal charter, license fee image of what the BBC is. But actually BBC Studios and hundreds of private companies are actually making the content for the BBC. Um, outside of news and sport, we have reached a stage where even people who are quite supportive of the BBC wonder whether the current system of license fee, public corporation, is really still what is required. They, I think, are increasingly within the BBC itself what the alternative is. The big sticking point seems to be, and I think this was partly why, you know, Nadine Doris then didn't go ahead with the full-throated assault on the BBC's licence fee that she seemed to be hinting would happen in her in her weekend announcement on Twitter. The big thing that seems to be stopping that full-throated engagement with reform is what happens to terrestrial broadcasting. There seems to be no clear way at the moment to introduce some sort of new system of funding or running public broadcasting that will... You know, be able to sustain terrestrial broadcasting, which at the moment, a lot of people still rely on. But I think at the same time, a lot of people think, well, five, 10 years, will digital terrestrial television still have such a place? Will digital audio broadcasting still have such a place? 
Probably not. And is that the point when the government can say, now we can move ahead and change things very radically? And coincidentally, that will be around the time that the current BBC Royal Charter expires. When you look at how to fund this stuff, and the thing that's always trotted out is a Netflix solution, Conservative MPs absolutely love to say, well, Netflix is only X pounds a month. What great value it is compared to the BBC. Well, of course, the Netflix doesn't do news, weather, the internet, radio, local stuff, nation stuff, language stuff, any of that. Do you think that this kind of rather glib subscription model can survive scrutiny when it actually goes through the work of committee and goes through the Commons and the Lords? And when you actually see that by any comparison, the licence fee actually does provide pretty good value for money? I think it can work for some things. The BBC is already making programmes for, you know, BBC Studios is making programmes for streaming platforms. uh, And the BBC is selling a lot of its programming, uh, the, the sort of streaming rights to its program through through other platforms. So um, the BBC is already sort of engaged in that subscription model. And it's also got this Brickbox platform of its own, which or which it shares mm-hmm. with ITV, which I don't think has, has proved hugely successful, but is is another way of of getting into this subscription model. So so the back catalogue, iPlayer, drama, comedy, entertainment of various forms, I think you can see that a subscription model would work. But the problem is, as you said, what about everything else? You know, how do you fund all the other things that the BBC does? And I think, you know, some of the some of the critics of the BBC have said, well, you know, I don't want to pay my license fee because I only use BBC One and Radio Three. So, you know, why should I pay for everything else? Others have said, well, you know, that's a silly argument because it's like the NHS, you know, I don't know if I'm going to need brain surgery or heart surgery or whatever, but I might as well pay for all of it so that when I need it, it's there. The problem is, once you start to hive off different things that the BBC does into subscription models, who is willing to pay for the other things? Who's willing to pay for local broadcasting? Who's willing to support BBC news operations? How are you going to pay for the world service? So even even if you put digital terrestrial broadcasting aside... It's very, very difficult to see how you can fund the breadth of services that that the BBC currently provides if it's not through some sort of direct government grant, ultimately from taxation, which, you know, is done in some other countries. It's not beyond the bounds of possibility. But I, I think it then gets into the realms of wondering, well, how does that affect the esteem and reputation of BBC news services at home in Britain? How does it affect the profile of, of BBC news services overseas when when listeners and viewers recognise that this news is paid for by the British state? It's it's an incredibly complex issue. And it's in some ways, I think, you know, you could argue that one of the reasons why the BBC has been so keen on empire building. This is one of the allegations that I think George Osborne sort of leveled against the BBC, that it was all about empire building. I think it's true. I think the BBC has, you know, had this really strong drive to expand into every possible area that it can do. And one of the consequences of that is it becomes very hard to unpick this hugely convoluted media combine that has so many different activities and aspects and branches so you know i think someone like nadine dorries might be 
tempted to sort of cut the Gordian knot and just slice through the whole thing rather than than think about how how you can unpick it and leave intact all the great things that the BBC does in terms of entertainment and news and international services. Simon Potter, thank you so much for joining me. It's been really fascinating. Thanks for inviting me and thanks for, for reading the book and, and talking about it. I love the way that it's not just budgets and acts of parliament. It's like all your favourite shows make an appearance in here. The goodies, Monty Python, Little Britain, The Young Ones. They're all, all the, all the landmarks of, of uh, British cultural history are in here. Listeners, we hope you've enjoyed the podcast. In the absence of a podcast licence, you can help The Bunker to carry on educating, entertaining and informing you by backing us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. Support us for as little as £2 a month and you will avoid the detective van coming around. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Mind how you go. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with lead production by Jacob Jarvis and supplementary production by Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich and Alex Reese. The music was by Kenny Dickinson, and it was a Podmasters production. Next on Radio 4, the kitchen cabinet heads to North London, where Alex Andreu samples the new culinary trend of Doritos lasagna. But first, the shipping forecast, issued by the Met Office at 0600. Viking, cyclonic 4 to 6. Moderate or rough, occasional rain, good, occasionally poor. North at Sierra, cyclonic 4 to 6. Moderate or rough, occasionally rain. 